with Arash Javari and Sina Rahmani, co-authors of their recent piece on Jadalia, Divorce, Iran-America Style. Arash is an assistant professor of politics at Whitman College, and Sina is the creator of The East is a Podcast. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Thank you. All right, so we're going to... <laughs> so we're going to just dive right in. Arash, could you speak first about your article, including maybe why you wrote it and a bit about its context? And then, Sina, of course, you can speak afterwards. We'd love to hear from you. We wrote it in a spirit of frustration with a tendency to counter um, this, to counter the ways in which people were attempting to respond to warmongering in the American media. So there was an effort to respond to that warmongering by saying, the Iranians are good people, we're ready to negotiate, uh, in effect, an attempt to engage with the existing frames that in, existed in media outlets. And we wanted to, to kind of take a step back and think about the underlying logic and how we could actually reframe the discussion in order to challenge uh, American efforts to um, engage in aggressive behavior in Iran, um, which weren't new, which were actually uh, a part of a much longer story and a part of a much longer tendency on, on the U.S.'s part to um, engage in aggressive behavior with respect to Iran. And so we wanted to do it in a way that was uh, clever, but that also kind of got at this core issue around um, the question of sovereignty and the question of self-determination and the relationship between sovereignty and self-determination. And so I was fortunate enough to be um, to have made Sina's acquaintance by virtue of being invited to uh, participate in an interview through a mutual friend for his show, The East is a Podcast. And uh, Sina is, you know, overflowing with wit and insight and uh, I don't even know how we stumbled upon this idea, but we stumbled upon this idea of um, it, you know, international relations being like a relationship and domestic affairs being you know, akin to a domestic drama and um, unpacking those kinds of dynamics uh, over the course of the 20th century between the U.S. and Iran as a way to critically reflect on um, the question of sovereignty and autonomy and independence uh, today. Uh, yeah, and I'll just kind of pick up on that. And sort of the core, the um, one of the sort of basic thesis that we ran with was a, was a sort of it was tongue in cheek on the surface, but I think it has sort of serious undertones, obviously, because um, you know the, the, we called it, it was divorce Iranian Iran was it Iran American style in the end? Yeah, 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 yeah Iran American style. Yeah, and you know obviously upon a title and on the famous sort of divorce movies, blah 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 blah, and we use this metaphor of a domestic um, a domestic breakup to describe Iranian-American relations. And like, if there is a sort of useful, and it comes out of, you know, on my end, it's kind of something that I do often simply because my training is a 19th century British novel. And, you know, the domestic, the sort of the space of domesticity and the space of making a home and all the sort of politics therein, right? I mean, from, think of Pride and Prejudice, right? And all the sort of politics going on in, in, in then the kids sort of putting on a play, a controversial play, right? The father doesn't like, and this is kind of a symbolic thing. So this is always kind of in the background of my own work and the sort of 19th century novel and its reliance upon domestic metaphors and sort of marriages, right? Sort of marriage plot, for instance. Um, and there's like a, there's an old joke in Victorian studies that all Victorian problems are solved in one, or two, one of two ways, marriage or immigration. And so this is like a... This is kind of like a recurring, uh, for lack of a better word, trope in my thinking of thinking about things through this domestic context. So it was something that 
you know, I've been kicking around and Arash has, for all he says about my genius, usually I'm just good for these one-liners. And in terms of actually developing into an argument is usually where I kind of fade away. So Arash was the one who sort of filled it out with a lot of the, a lot of the actual argumentation. Arash, I think, comes a lot more. I think you see a lot of, you see both of us in our training in that essay, but in this instance, the sort of political science, real politique, that's, um, I think that was more sort of Arash's, Arash's kind of domain. So oh, I we think, got, oh, I'm I sorry, should, go ahead. No, I was, gonna, I was just going to say, I think you two should get a room. <laughs> yeah. I've been trying, sister. I mean, come on. I've been trying. It's all right. Who's the holdout? I, you know, I play hard to get. I play hard to get. <laughs> okay, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, Arash. Um, I think, you know, what was interesting about writing the piece, like, we delighted ourselves, like, we, we like, amused <laughs> ourselves in the process of writing it. And it was really interesting to see how the metaphor, like, powerfully like unfurled itself before us so there was a you know like the, the movies part i mean it's kind of crazy not without my daughter comes out and that's the first post-revolutionary post-1979 movie that makes a big splash and it's about a domestic drama and then you have a separation in 2011 wins the oscar and it's about domestic drama um so i think you know all of these various layers uh started to show themselves to us and we we got a kick out of that while we were ready so you sort of kind of explained this already in your answer, but more concretely, how does this piece relate to recent developments and escalations of tension between Iran and the U.S.? Maybe, Arash, you can go first again. So I think there's a paragraph there um, in the second section, uh, the long durée of an abusive relationship. And that starting paragraph um, it ends with the Iran shooting down a U.S. drone within um, Iranian uh, territory. And to me, that's kind of the lasting insight of the piece, is this reflection on the question of self-determination as it relates to sovereignty. How has Iran attempted to play by the rules of the game, which say that you have a right to self-determination, which means that you can do whatever you want to do within your territorial nation-state borders, um, and that those borders are yours. Uh, how has Iran attempted to actually um, play by those rules, and how has its very attempts to play by those rules been undercut, which makes gives the impression that the rules really don't matter, right? That the rules um, are kind of a front. They, they don't. They aren't actually enforceable. They don't. They don't actually give you any kind of guarantee if you have a hegemon that can break them at will. And that's something that we know, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there are plenty of critiques of the United States um, as, acting as a bully across the globe and, um, you know, making rules and enforcing rules when it wants to and then when it doesn't want to, allowing exceptions and allowing for those rules to be broken. Uh, but I think that taking uh, that very uh, dynamic, which is at the core of U.S. interventionary war in Iraq in 2003, it's at the core of U.S. efforts to discuss this notion of regime change in, in Iran, um, taking that and really thinking about it uh, as it's played out in Iran-U.S. relations over the course of, of a century. And I, if I may, I'd like to like kind of like, for the listener, kind of regurgitate the steps. So at some point, um, the Ira Iranian statesmen think that it's not a big deal to concede territorial sovereignty when they give over an oil concession to the British. The implication there is that I Iranian statesmen believe that sovereignty doesn't necessarily exist or self-determination doesn't necessarily exist um, in uh, the notion of control over a territory. 
there there must be some kind the implication would be that unless they're just stupid there must be some kind of uh, a sense in which uh, sovereignty exists within the people or somewhere else other than in territory Seven years later, after they give the concession, you have the discovery of oil. It's the Darcy concession, right? It's the Darcy concession. Yeah. Right. Seven years later, after the Darcy concession, you get the discovery of oil in 1908. And uh, those statesmen and the country as a whole, or those pe that people as a whole, have to pay for um, that short-sightedness. So fast forward 50 years to Mossadegh, 1951, he becomes the prime minister. There's an effort to say, okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're going to assert self-determination and sovereignty by claiming sovereignty over our nation-state borders. We're going to nationalize our natural resources and make a, stake a claim to them. Iran does that. What happens? There's a coup. So you lose if you understand sovereignty and self-determination as not protecting your territory and not claiming it. You then lose 50 years later when you do claim it as yours. Fast forward 30 years after that, you get the Islamic Revolution, and there's an, a, an attempt to claim sovereignty that, ex again, transcends state borders. It's pan-Islamic, and uh, you, you, doesn't have a, you don't have an opportunity to actually practice that or realize that. Within one quick year, you have the annexation of territory by a neighboring state, Iraq, and Iran has to play, is forced to play by the rules of territorial sovereignty. So the effort in kind of listing these things out was to create like a bigger story, a bigger picture of where we're at right now, where Iran is acting in accordance with these rules that have been enforced upon it, um, or the, the, the rules that you're expected to play by in the international game. But when it does so, um, it, gets it gets punished. And so the, the justification for the war at the moment when we were writing the piece and publishing it was, um, you know, Iran shot down a U.S. drone. And we were on the verge of war because Iran shot down a U.S. drone. Well, Iran shot down a U.S. drone because it was acting according to, you know, the expectations of any territorial nation state, which is supposed to be able to defend itself if something, you know, contravenes its borders. So I'll stop there. I talked a lot. Sorry. No, no. Fascinating. Do you have something to add, Sina? Yeah, and I would also, the one, this is not a Iranian story. This is, this is the, you know, 19th Constitutional Revolution. This is the opposition of the Republicans of Iran, right? Like, this has been a century-long struggle for Iranians to assert some kind of, to put on a liberal word, agency. And the 79 Revolution did that, like, did that permanently, right? Achieved that permanently, undeniably. That's the root of all this, is that they refuse that the games are over with Iran, that like you can't just simply bully Iran into doing into doing your bidding for you anymore, right? Maybe you could find some quizzling monarch to do it for you. We know their names, right? Not just not just the House of Hanavi, but also the previous ones, right? And so that this has been a constant struggle in Iranian history. And I think that anyone who wants to talk about Iranian history, anyone talk about Iranian contemporary politics, you can't let go, you can't like ever forget that this has been about Iranian sovereignty, right? This is about the agency of Iranians to determine what they do with their land, their resources, that kind of thing. So it's a simple idea, right? It's a liberal idea of controlling nation, having, right? Like living up to these sort of so-called liberal ideas of the world-based or the rules-based liberal order, whatever that means. Iran has been doing that, right? But God forbid, you know, Iran have a foreign policy. God forbid that Iran do something that contravenes the unlimited global hegemony that Americans think that they have. 
right? I mean, this is the problem. The problem is not Iran here. The problem is America and how it sees the world. And I think we stumbled upon, like, a really effective way to respond to some of the critiques of this position, which is, okay, fine, that's all good and dandy, but what about actual domestic affairs? What about, you know, Iran imprisoning certain citizens? What about, you know, authoritarianism within the the nation state? And I I really appreciate, um, if I may say so myself, um, something that we kind of stumbled upon in the article, which is to say, okay, yes, all revolutions are a kind of breaking up. They are a kind of domestic dispute. But the problem is this revolution hasn't been able to adjudicate its own domestic disputes on its own terms because the U.S. has made the, the revolution about itself. It's made it, so it's that, that idea that two divorces are happening at the same time is a way to talk about how the U.S. constantly centering itself with respect to what happened in 1979 has precluded Iranians within Iran from dealing with uh, internal, you know, and here we're playing with the word domestic, um, internal dynamics and affairs. And so I think it's a way of kind of like speaking to and anticipating the critiques of um, an anti-imperialist position with respect to contemporary Iranian politics, insofar as we're saying we're not justifying or apologizing for things that happen within Iranian borders. Iran shouldn't be able to do whatever it wants to do within within those borders. One can have some kind of moral position or ethical position, but one needs to put the, that, that position in broader context. And the kind of context that we live in is one where the U.S.'s presence and its intervention is actually precluding us from resolving those kinds of, for 40 years, it's precluded us from resolving those kinds of issues or addressing them. And to extend the metaphor, um, it's sort of like in this mediation period, like in a divorce where two parties are, you know, talking to each other and dividing up the assets. The U.S. has been waging acts of war against Iran for 40 years, uh, if not longer, of course. So in the mediation, it's like one side is taking pot shots against the other one, trying to take as much as they can from the agreement. And the other one is staying constrained by the agreement of the divorce or the proceedings of the mediation. That kind of leads into the next point, which is towards the last few paragraphs of your piece, you write about the significance of the films that are made by Iranians and the films that are made about Iran um, and compare them to relationship between Iran and the U.S., could you um, explain what this reference is meant to allude to? And perhaps, Sina, since you have the background in this, you could go first. Uh, sure. <laughs> Actually, I'm, ba- I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just kind of pull up that. I'm trying to think about what, what you're referring to. But oh, yeah, you were talking about, about like the specific, like, not about your daughter. And... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in the sense that, like, the, the, there's kind of two issues. There's the, there's the representation of Iran, right? And inside of that, there's the representation of Iran by, by Westerners, by Americans, by people who are, you know, um, you know, not, whatever, whatever, right? That kind of Orientalist framework. And then there's the uh, Iranian representation of Iran, and that, and that's, like, you know, multiform and diverse, and there's different aspects of it, and then, but the problem is, and we're like everybody else, right? The same thing can be said about Syrians, the same thing can be said about, you know, Polish people, right? There's a diaspora that represents the country, and then there's a, sort of, inside the domestic, whatever, cultural industry, whatever you want to call it, and so, for us, for me, I've always sort of watched, I mean, these texts and stuff have always been kind of important to me in the sense that, like, this is the only places I ever saw Iran, Right in, in Western TV, right? It was like the only places I ever saw representations of Iran. What I saw was a threatening country, a, a, a menace, right? A bunch of religious fanatics, right? And all that trauma of the revolution, as Arash 
pointed out, right? Like we don't get to work it out, right? We don't get to sort of in the Freudian terms to kind of work through like that, that kind of working through is important to all revolutionary sort of history, right? Like the U.S. is still working out its revolutionary, like its civil war. I mean, like this, this, like literally there are people like fighting and dying over statues of civil war leaders, right? right? I mean, if that's not like a representation of like the internal chaos of the U.S., like a country of considerable size, like much larger than the, much larger than Iran that also had a far, that Iran didn't have a civil war, for instance, Right, like Iran is a like a more pluralistic society, at least more so than the U.S. in the sense of like the U.S. is an apartheid state, and so these these basic sort of sociological kind of observations, right? Like that, like you know, in Iran, for instance, there's public health care, there's free education, there's a socialized sort of base of civil society, right? Like you can't, people don't sort of people don't sort of fathom that this is not some that some this is some failed state. Right, like, and so the job of representing Iran when you're an Iranian, right? You're always in that Orientalist, between the rock and a hard place, Orientally speaking, right? On the one hand, you have this job of speaking, like, you know, representing the diversity and the contradictions of any society, especially a society like Iran, which is big and diverse and whatever, right? But on the other hand, you have the constant sort of cultural pogrom that's waged on Iran that people feel like they have to respond to, right? Because the imperialists still have incredible cultural power. Right, like they still have incredible cultural power, and so they're able, for instance, like there's an army of Iranian Americans who full time are paid to like talk shit, right? Like they just sit there and like that's their job to like talk shit. And there's like all of these kind of like, yeah, like you know what I mean? And it's like, I, I mean, like, like I always make this joke, like if I became a regime change psycho, I would get a job at Georgetown, like I would be fast tracked, or I think, right? Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's, and it's like that. This is the absurdity of having to be representing Iran, right? Like, this is like the, the absurdity of my own podcast, and it comes out of it, which is like, here's, a, here's I'm a guy who didn't do Iranian studies. Okay, I, I, I did the Korean stuff. And I did it actually not disconnected from all that pogrom, right? Like, part of it is that they, they teach you to hate yourself. And I think that kind of, that kind of, you know, that kind of cultural legacy, Americans need to realize that, like, the world is a much different place than the one they see, right? Like the, the thing in their TV boxes, these magical sort of flickering images of the world that you get, like on your phone and stuff, like this is not like reality, right? Like this is not like a world that you see. This is not, this is just this like, fictional kind of passion play that they've been rolling for 40 years of Americans are being violated. Their embassy was, their embassy was stormed. We were, I mean, not without my daughter is an allegory of kidnapping, right? It's a kidnapping allegory. It's a hostage crisis movie. It's a captivity. Yeah, and it's like, and it's about, and it's about people, and it's about, and played by Gabriel Byrne of all people, and filmed in Jordan and Israel or something. Like all of the actors have Arab accents. Like it's just like it's every Orientalist. Like you should find a clip, and I can send it to you. Like just there's this part where like just Gabriel Byrne is speaking speaking in Persian to an Arab guy, clearly Arab because he has Arab accent. And it's like, what hell world am I in that I'm like watching this movie? I remember watching this movie when I was like ten or something. And then my my mom came and she's like, "No, this is all garbage." Right? I was like, "Yeah, but it's I mean, but it's the only thing I ever saw, right?" It was like, and so that I'm, I'm ranting here, but like that is like a that's where the article comes from in terms of the impossibility of representing Iran in the U.S. context. And the only way to really do that is to find a way to tell Americans that everything you think about Iran is wrong. And you need to like, and you need to accept the revolution. You need to accept the fact that America's hegemony is blocked in the Islamic Republic. That like, even this debate, for instance, about 
you know, should we go to a war with Iran? It's like, do you realize that Iranians are not just simply going to, like, sit back and take it? Like, do you realize that this, a war with Iran would be, like, the most disastrous thing, like, it would be the end times? And, like, these are, these are, these are problems of representation, fundamentally. They're not political problems. I mean, they stem from politics, but these are problems of representing the world. And that's something that representations of Iran in most contexts, uh, in the Western context, that is, you know, don't, don't, they fail to do, right? They just show the same thing we know over and over again, which is Iran is a threat to the U.S. That was a big fat rant. No, no, it was awesome. So I have a question about this issue of re-rendering propaganda. The cause for Palestinian liberation has become increasingly sympathetic to, especially younger generations of Americans. However, it seems that the U.S. isn't concerned about combating the faulty information disseminated about Iran. When people object to going to war with Iran, it seems to be based more on an anti-war and anti-interventionist atmosphere today than it is about disputing the U.S. characterization of Iran. What do you think uh, could account for this discrepancy? Can I, yeah, I think there's. I think Sina actually has an answer to this, and oh, it, it speaks to a part of the piece. <laughs> yeah, you do, because that's actually where the piece really started, and it speaks to a part of the piece that I think needs a little bit of explaining, which is why do we list Argo amongst these? Oh other yeah, right? Argo isn't about on the surface about any kind of divorce or separation or domestic drama, but the link that we make is to the embassy siege. And Sina mentioned something in, in his previous response, which is this cultural pogrom. So I'll, I'll let you speak to it, but my understanding, and this I think is what I got us on to you know, writing this piece, was you have this thesis about the, speci- the specific insult to the American ego, if you will, that was registered with the embassy siege after the revolution. And the, the mediated quality of it, the presence of it on, on TVs, and, and the kind of effort by the U.S. to respond to that now, or at least the U.S. media to respond to that for what's gone for 40-plus years now. But, I, you know, I, I was hoping that you would speak to that a little bit, Sina. Oh, yeah, yeah, Argo. I forgot about Argo. Yeah, so the thing about... It's best forgotten. I remember seeing... Go ahead. I said it's best forgotten, so I don't blame you. Yeah, right. You won an Oscar. Go, like, like, listeners at home, please, like, go and watch the acceptance speech of Ben Affleck. And it's, like, five white guys, five white guys standing on a stage just at the top of their industry, right? Like, they just see dollar signs everywhere, right? Like, after you win an Oscar, you're set, right? Like, they just see dollar signs. And they're sitting there, and he, like, throws, and he's like, oh, and this is the people of Iran who are facing a very difficult uh, situation or some bullshit like that. This is the peak Obama, this is peak Obama sanction. Right? Like, this is, like, people can't get cancer medication because America has decided it's going to be like that. That if you do any business with Iran, this rogue state, right, that we are going to punish you, right? This is peak Obama. And, like, this, Obama, like, Obama began these regimes. Like, he put the he put the harshest sanctions regime ever instituted, right? Like, that's the special place in history for Iranians. And so, like, that Argo, like, watching Argo and, and like, and sort of looking around and seeing all these Americans, like, oh, what do you say? You know, because the first five minutes of the movie had this weird, like, cartoony, sort of animated aspect of, like, telling the story of Mossad and blah, 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 blah. It's, you know, kind of whatever, right? It's kind of like a, it's kind of like an acknowledgement of the fact that, oh, there's context here. But it's just like, it's, it's just, it's, it's an afterthought. Really, the movie is about, it's like, they turn the revolution into this cheap spy thriller, right? Like, the only victory they can get is cultural. Because the actual, like, in their heads, at least, and it's far after the fact. And the fact that Argo won an Oscar, right, should tell you something about, like, 
what gets viewed as important, like media, right? So the Oscars are typically, you know, the serious drama stuff or political stuff, or so recently it's like the big time, you know, productions as well, blah, blah, blah. But like, this was, this was Hollywood saying that, oh, we, we want to take Iran seriously, blah, blah, blah. And look what it does. It produces this movie that isn't about Iranians. Iran is just the background, right? And the same old tired tropes get trotted out. Screaming bearded men, guns, blah, 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 blah women who look like penguins, you know, like this, like, it's just every boring cliche you can think of, right? Like, think of every picture you've seen of Iranian women, a solitary Iranian woman walking across the scene. Like, that's, this is how Americans see Iran. This is like a natural sort of problem. And so to finally answer the, to get back to your original question, which is, I think that the origins of this, of the special place that Iran holds in the American imagination has to do with the revolution, and more specifically, the embassy siege. And you note that I don't call it a hostage crisis, but I call it an embassy siege. And there's a reason for that, which is we're talking about Iran. Iranian, like, like that coup, 53 coup, was planned in part in that embassy, right? It wasn't a neutral space. And so for Iranians to sort of take sovereignty of that space, I think was an important act. Not It produced... It produced the evidence of American complicity in these crimes and the American sort of what Americans had been up to all these years, the sort of this theft of wealth and all these other things. This is happening in that embassy. And so this business of, of oh, the embassy is a sacred space, right? It's like, oh, okay, what's more sacred? The, the embassy or the country, the country political system in which that embassy is based? In the American worldview, that embassy is holy, right? Like, I mean, embassy, and that's the only thing that matters. And what happens outside of that is whatever, right? And so this is like, Part of the sort of Orientalist leftovers, if anything I can suggest is talk about covering Islam. Uh, covering Islam is kind of the Orientalist trilogy by Ebu Said. It's covering Islam, or Orientalism, of course, covering Islam and question of Palestine. And covering Islam has been the one that's gotten the shortest shrift. And I think that's a shame because it really was inspired by the revolution in the sense of all the things that Said saw on TV and in the newspapers. It really sort of instruct, instructed him nicely in how, like, the media, so popular media, like news media, blah, 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 translated the Orientalist thesis that he kind of, he kind of built up in that first book, right? And so it was a nice kind of, people don't read them as a trilogy, and I think they should, but, you know, the, the sort of thesis that I had running in this sort of book that will one day be written, it's called Live from Tehran, and essentially it's a, the hostage, the, oh my God, I just did it again, the, uh, the embassy siege was, I think the seminal moment in 24-hour news cycle, right? It's sort of it's a media moment and it's a really important moment in, in sort of cultural history because it showed that you know the um, otherworldliness of the Middle East of the Orient could be covered live, right? It's not some far distant report, it's not some radio report, it's not some sort of romantic image. It's live images from this place, and this is sort of birth. This is kind of satellite TV early days, like they were a confluence of forces. Some you know, that were just kind of good timing, but, you know, people have, like, cable TV is sort of becoming a thing, right, like, new, like, this is before, this is just before cable news, but it kind of leads to cable news nicely, because it says the world is an infinite content machine, right, and we can represent it with our cameras, we can send somebody in, or we can get some sort of library, and we can get two minutes out of there, and we can milk that two minutes for 30, because we have experts in the U.S. ready to sort of dissect these images we just saw. Right, and so this is the model that we still see today. Right, a couple of minutes of footage from Afghanistan, if that, from Iraq, from where, from Haiti, and then you have they switch to podcast mode essentially, where people sit and talk. Right, like this is an Orientalist framework that says the way we see the world is more important than the world itself, 
And that's the only thing. And those things are actually the same. How we see the world and the world, those are the same. And so my argument has been kind of the case study of the of the embassy of the embassy siege shows us how we got our media today, which is to say the world is always able to be represented, but it can't represent itself. And this is kind of the thing from Orientalism that Saeed sort of opens with epigraphically from uh, I think it's the 18th Brumaire. And so this has been something that's always been in my mind of you know the impossibility of just even talking about Iran, right? Like literally right now, two people here in Vermont, like are like, oh, you're Iranian, it's hard times there. And I was like, yeah. Oh, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, what do we know about Saisha? She's like, yeah, here's a lot of political protests and arrests and authoritarian. I was like, okay. <laughs> it was like a memeable moment of like, oh, really? And then you see what they said. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's more like it, actually. You know, and you're just like, yeah. And then you have to kind of move on, right? Like, this is like a daily struggle for Iranians, I think. And some are. At least me. I don't know what it's like for you, Arash, because you know, I think it's different for people who aren't American. I think you were, like, born in this morass. I mean, you were born in it, but, like, this is, like, the cultural sort of realm that you kind of folded way to you. I mean, it's the same kind of what I'm saying, but... But there was... There's another big, long rant. What's, what's profound to me about, like, your your work and your research, Sina, you know, is the idea that, you know, the fact that on reality TV, you know, in the first iteration of, like, a reality TV situation... Oh, yeah, that was my argument. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing my argument better than me. Yeah, the hostage crisis is. Oh my God, I did it again. The uh, the embassy siege is the sort of first birthplace of reality TV news. That's the that's the elevator pitch. Can you tell I've never written a book before and I've never pitched a book before? <laughs> but but the but the U.S. gets disrespected in in this like broadcast spectacular fashion. The U.S. gets disrespected. And there's a sense in which, you know, the U.S. media, at least, hasn't been able to get over that. That, be, that causes a paradigm shift with respect to Iran. If I may, I think another component to answer your question, which I think is a really, really good question. Why is it that the Palestinian cause is finding more and more kinds of um, sympathetic audiences within the United States, whereas Iran is not? Um, there's an anti-war sentiment, but it's just an anti-war sentiment. It's, it's about, okay, let's just not intervene. Uh, it's not about actual, actually understanding or sympathizing with the Islamic Republic, God forbid. And I think the reason for that is because of the deep um, threat that's perceived by the figure of the Muslim. We're talking about the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, whether or not we agree with it, whether that's an actual representation of Islam, all of that is beside the point. The issue is the figure of the Muslim, not Islam itself, but the figure of the Muslim and its position, its presence as the ultimate other with respect to not only the U.S.'s consciousness, but Western consciousness in general. We could, we could trace that back 500 years. You know, we can go all the way back to the first encounters with the other in Europe. It was who? Indigenous folks. And it was Moors, right? They were the ones that were the racialized others with respect to the European self. That then causes a problem um, when you define savageness or heathenness or otherness on those terms because people can convert out of you know, their um, other religions, their savage religions or religious practices and become Christians. And so then 200 years later, you have the development of scientific racism, which is associated with phenotype. But what we've seen, especially in the last 40 years, is a return to self by uh, the Judeo-Christian West, which is a return to what we might call cultural racism, which understands itself in opposition to the figure of the Muslim. 
And I think that the Iranian Revolution in 1979 evoked all of those fears. It brought yeah, all their of biggest, it's their biggest fears. Yeah, it's, 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 it's their true. deepest seated. It's their deepest seated. Yeah. And as a, as a result of that, it's very, very difficult for Western audiences who are, you know, left-leaning liberals to say, okay, I empathize with self-determination cast in terms of Islam. That's, a, that's too far of a leap. Because that would require a fundamental reshuffling. Yes, it would require a fundamental realignment of their subject position. And that, that takes a lot of work, right? That takes a lot of work. But I also think that I, I grew up in the South and I can say that Palestinians are seen as Muslim. Most of them are seen today as foot soldiers of Hamas, which isn't true, obviously. Right. But I don't know if it's so much about uh, the Islamic aspect of it as much as it may be the attractiveness of a state versus state conflict, which is like the sexiest thing that Americans can imagine. You know, like, ah, oh, yeah, war. That was when we were the most powerful, when we could beat up anyone we wanted. But what's the point of beating up Palestinians? Israel's yeah. doing just fine at mm -hmm. that. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's so much about Islam as much as it is about the state versus state system. But it is really interesting that it hasn't shifted so much. But it, well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, in the sense that the, the, the mystique is that Islamic sort of Orientalist thing, right? Like, um, That's a part of it, yeah. It's massive. Yeah. Yeah, like that, and the, and the fact that this was a quote-unquote Islamic revolution, right? Like this was, I mean, it, all right, we might contest that. I mean, some Iranians do contest that. They say a revolution that was then Islamicized, right? But these are, like that, that, that specter of, let's say, Khomeini, right? Like that, like Ayatollah Asahola business, right? Like, or, you know, this sort of Skufan, you know, Barbaran, like Bamaran, like all these cultural signifiers are, like, what, they, what tie them all together is not just like a racism, right? Like racism is kind of just there, whatever, who cares? Like it's, it's, it's you know, it's not like as if, as if Iran is somehow special in the racist imagination. No, like they, the way that the racist against Iraqis is the same way the racist against us. Like that's not really interesting to me, but it's the fact that Iran hegemonically, right? Like, so, like in the terms of, in real politic terms, does in fact pose a threat. And it does in fact, it did inspire a lot of political radicalism in the region, right? And like, the fact that, like, people talk now about Shia Crescent, which is bullshit. Right. That is symptomatic, but not just sort of orientalist kind of, whatever, DC thinking, but it's also a recognition of the fact that maybe there are ties that bind together these different countries and these different nationalities that we don't understand, right? Like, maybe the connection between, you know, like, like let's say, like, Hezbollah and, and Hezbollah and Iran, right? Like, let's say, like, maybe that's a connection that can't be in, in, in sort of the world of the U.S., right? Like there are, you know, state actors, non-state actors, there are all these factions, there are all these things, and there are forces, right? But it's usually a kind of, you know, in terms of American politics, just, just a sort of separate stereotypical, just a talk stereotypical, it's usually, it's usually um, a kind of a transactional relationship, right? So the U.S. has client states, it, it pays them to sort of do its business, you know, and then it allows, them, allows the people who run those client states to live a certain kind of life and blah, blah, blah. Right, but it's a transactional thing, and it's, it escapes people that maybe the Hezbollah fighter from Saida in Lebanon goes to Syria at the behest of, let's say, Hezbollah, right? Like, but also like funded by the Islamic Republic. Maybe he goes to Syria and goes and fights there and dies there, whatever. Maybe he goes there not for the money, not for the mercenary reasons that say the, the Sudanese people go to Yemen, 
right? Like the Sudanese people don't care about Saudi politics. They don't have a connection to Saudi Arabia or UAE, right? They go there because they're poor, right? But it's not a mercenary situation in Syria, right? These aren't mercenaries. These are allies, right? And I think that's what hurts them the most is that the U.S. Nobody wants to be on the U.S. side, right? Like. <laughs> And I, yeah. nobody likes the U.S. Americans don't like the U.S., right? Like, and I think what you were saying earlier, I think it's wrong. I think Iran, the Islamic Republic, has never been more sympathetic. Has never been more sympathetic. In my, and I see that, at least if, if Twitter is, it says anything, I think that there's a new recognition that, like, you know, it's like the meme, like, maybe we're the, are we the baddies? Right? Like, I think there's an increasing recognition that, yeah, the U.S. is the baddies. The U.S. has always been the fucking baddies. When was the U.S. good in the Middle East? When? Like, name a time. Never. It's never been the case. So, like, so like this kind of grand consensus about Middle East peace and blah, 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 regional hegemony. And just, like, this is a joke. Like, Iran, like, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and then it invaded Iraq and then it supports all, and then it basically invaded Yemen with, with the help of Saudi Arabia, right? Like, that's a U.S. war, right? It, it also invaded Syria, right, with the help of its allies and psychos, right? Like, the U.S. tried to remake the Middle East and it failed. And, and it, like, failed, like, before our eyes, right? And, and that's a quite staggering thing that, like, I don't think we in the sort of scholarly community really sort of grapple with in our kind of everyday banal lives. I think as we study the Middle East and we've seen one revolution called an X and one occupier go and another one come, right? And there's a kind of weird, perverse continuity to it. But to kind of wrap this rant up, I think what scares this, the fear is that the Islamic Republic becomes a kind of model and it becomes a kind of heroic, and it's not an isolated little state. I mean, they try to isolate it, but it's not Cuba. It's not an island that they could just bully, right? Like they can't occupy a chunk of Iran and then build a base on it and then set up like a torture prison camp. Like they couldn't do that. Don't right? think like, they, they won't could, try. You know, yeah, they might try, but like that it would be, it would like Iran has, despite the, the deck being stacked against them, despite a hundred billion dollars in frozen assets, despite everything, despite a brain drain of like mind boggling for uh, uh, like a scale, right? Like Harish and I are a product of the uh, the fleeing, like the, we were basically refugees from the war, right? A war imposed on us or on Iran by the West, right? I mean, these are all just, just that's just one crime, right? Like, out of like decades worth of crimes against the Iranian people. So, who knew that after a while, Iranians might fight back? And this is where the racism comes in. Who knew that they might be good at it? I think that's what hurts people in the Syria case is that they're like, wow, a few thousand Iranian soldiers, or maybe a few, or more than a few thousand, they really made the difference. Right, like a few thousand Hezbollah guys, like a relatively small. I mean, Russia obviously did a huge, huge, played a huge role too. Like, not to dismiss that, but this is like the war in Syria was an attempt to really put the screws to Iran, and it failed. And it only showed the world that if you resist the U.S. and you resist the sort of regime change politics, and if you do it with allies, if you have allies, remember Iraq didn't have allies, Afghanistan didn't have allies. Right? Iran has many allies, and those allies live in the region. They know the region better than the U.S. And so, again, to wrap up this rant, like the world needs, to, like Americans, people listening to the show need to. I mean, obviously, if you're listening to the show, you probably have a certain sympathy with this viewpoint. But like the urgent task, I would say that people who are quote on our side is to rec is to tell like the policy not the policy makers, but just kind of everyone they see and whenever this comes up is like this isn't the 19th century. This isn't you know, artillery versus spears. Like, people in the Middle East are capable of defending their countries, and if need be, they will destroy the entire infrastructure of the Middle East. 
if they want, if they need to do that. But I mean, that's, and that's kind of like my point in again and again, pushing on this like Iran war scenario. It's like, no, this is a suicide scenario because it would be suicide to the entire imperial sort of finance and energy infrastructure that the U.S. has erected in the last 70 years, right? Like Iran has its hands, excuse me, on the ball, has its hands around the balls of the U.S. empire. And if it wanted to, it could squeeze any time it wants and burst those fucking things. Because Saudi Arabia doesn't exist. It's this island. It's this little, like, it's like this, this, this oligarchy that has no water, right? Its water is all on the coast. You can easily hit it. UAE is gone in, a da- in an hour, right? They could probably hit Tel Aviv, but they probably won't to, like, keep them out of it, right? Like, these are the end game scenarios that the U.S. has now forced us to now discuss, and I think that in our in our communities, we need to be more realistic, talking military terms. We need to talk about the Millennium Challenge, stuff like that. And the more we do that, the more I think it becomes clear to people that, holy shit, the U.S. is fucked. Because think about it. What, do, what was the point of this empire if you can't beat up on a country like Iran? Okay, you can invade Iraq. Sure, it took you three tries. Remember, they had like three goes at it. And the Iran-Iraq war was to help soften them up, too, which it did. Right? Sure, you can invade Afghanistan, one of the poorest countries in the world. Sure, you can do that. Are you going to win that war? No. And did they win that war? No. Right? They got their asses handed to them time and time again. Now, the Iraqis are the ones who paid the price primarily. Right? Like, it's not, it's, it's, it's you know, the winning the war, quote unquote, doesn't mean much. Right? Especially from Iraqi viewpoint of a million people dead. But what can you say? Like, this is, this is an American made catastrophe. These catastrophes affecting the Middle East. Even now, the UAE, it came out yesterday, a couple of days ago, but the UAE sent a delegation to Iran, right? Like, Iran is now becoming the power broker in the region. This is the U.S.'s doing. This is the U.S.'s doing. The U.S. accelerated Iran's like, hegemonic expansion in terms of, and, and, and when I say hegemonic expansion, I don't see that in the imperialist way, right? The way the U.S. expands I'm talking about allies. It builds allies and it has. And it has a foreign policy. Ooh, can that, I was long, that, that was the longest rant yet. I, so I've heard it a few times. So can I strike yes. a dour note in response? <laughs> or Kylie's probably like, she's like, what is this? What is that? It's so fascinating. Long. Come on. This is like a vaudeville act. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how about how about this? After we, we've had this invasion scenario before in 2003. And for a good six years, there was a clear sentiment of anti-Americanism in the region, and there was a clear unanimity of anti-American sentiment across the region. And then you have the Arab uprisings. And the Arab uprisings caused confusion, in particular in the Syrian case. And in effect, if we're talking about a falling empire, which I do think we're talking about, right, one that's on its heels, um, we're talking about a, a, a real... Uh, aggressive and powerful animal that can be dangerous when it's desperate. And one of the manifestations of its desperation is to cause chaos as a last resort. And I think what we saw with the Arab uprisings was an effort to re-entrench its interests and its powers in the region, as well as Israeli interests and Israeli powers within the region, by virtue of um, supporting chaos across the region. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps a bit less hopeful than you, Sina, in terms of what Iran is doing right now, because the last resort on the Iranian side is to say, OK, we will participate in the creation of chaos across the region in response to your aggressive actions. 
And I don't think that, um, the, as you pointed out with respect to the 1 million Iraqis, I don't think that people, the people of the region actually win uh, as a result of that chaos. And so I think um, that's, that's the tragedy of it all. Like, I think that you're, we're, we're talking about... Everybody loses. Everybody, everybody loses. Now. Yeah, it's an imperial force that uh, benefits from sowing chaos as a last desperate resort. And, uh, I, you know, I don't think that there's the same kind of unanimity of anti-American sentiment in the region or anti-American imperialism. Not anti-American sentiment, but anti-American imperialism. And I don't think there's the same kind of unanimity around that. Uh, <laughs> What's that? <laughs> well, I do think that some people were receptive to, like, Obama getting elected in 2008. So, uh, you know... Uh, a straight, like, blank anti-Americanism, but I think there was a, a sentiment of anti-imperialism after the 2003 Iraq War. Um, and I think that there were there was a there was some doubts around that. I mean, I think there was a debate, a vigorous debate around um, American intervention in Libya. I think there was a vigorous debate around American intervention in Syria. And I think that there was confusion around that position, whereas there had been unanimity pr uh, prior to. And I think that we're still like not back at that position of unanimity. I felt like in your in your rant or in your in what you were saying, there was a sense that there is unanimity. I don't I don't know if I don't know if we're there. And I think that the the end result is you know okay we're gonna cause chaos. And I don't think that that's necessarily um, against the interests of a desperate and falling empire. I think they're invested in causing chaos as a last resort as well. And I think at the end of the day, who loses, we lose. No, yeah, we all lose. Oh, yeah, especially Iranians. I mean, it would be suicide yeah. to, like, destroy America's, like, infrastructure. It would be suicide. The Islamic Republic would get just pummeled. But yeah. the thing, the U.S. would lose its entire banking industry, right? Like, the global banking industry would go into decline. Like, all that, all that Gulf oil money, boom, gone. So the stakes are actually quite high. You know, like, this isn't Iraq. They can't just occupy Iraq. Right? Like it would be, it would be end times. It would be end times. You know, like, and this is like the fact that we're talking about this, right? Like, is is this is America's fault? <laughs> like, this is like the U.S.'s creation of like this conversation. Like, this is not a pleasant thing, right? To like imagine this stuff. And like, I may sound positive, but like, it's I'm only positive in the sense that like I'm happy that American hegemony has been checked. That, like. The Islamic Republic's, for instance, ballistic missile-like capabilities. But like that's that literally... That's precisely what's right? scary. American hegemony being checked means that yeah. a falling and collapsing empire is up against the ropes, and they would be willing, under those circumstances, to resort to desperate measures. And that's precisely that's right. what's scary. I mean, isn't it ironic? Of all people, we're sitting here talking about the U.S. as if they're suicide bombers, which is kind of what they are. You know what I mean? Like that kind of like, this is like, we're talking, this is like Tamil Tiger philosophy of like just storming something and like blowing yourself up. But like, the thing is that it's not like, it's not just the violence on the bodies of the people in that. It's that the, what the Middle East has become for the U.S., right? Like it's the center of its power. And that's why they keep waging these wars in them. I and mean, one of the reasons why they keep waging these disastrous policies, right? Like, like, you know, Hillary Clinton, the bloodthirsty ghoul and her, like, Libya stuff, like, seeing her smiling, talking about, we, we came, we saw, he died. You know, just, just these people are just degenerates. You know, like, they're bloodthirsty degenerates celebrating death, celebrating destruction. I mean, Libya was the most advanced country in Africa. Now there are open slave markets, right? Like, that was an Obama accomplishment, right? Like, the JCPOA 
like turned the attention away from Obama's disastrous war crimes, right? And that's just one instance. We're not talking about Syria. We're not talking about Iraq. Like the scale of American crimes in the region, we just like there has to be a podcast, and I may start it myself, of just like today in imperialist Middle East history, the following things happen. Like, and it's just like a litany of the crimes that have been waged in the region for so long. And so I think if this the tide is turning in terms of representation of this of this sort of region, I think the tide is turning. And I think the fact that the U.S. is so incompetent, right? Like the trillion five trillion dollars spent on wars, right? And like, what has it gotten? Right? Iran has never been more powerful in the region, right? Like they took out two of Iran's enemies. Like they, like Khomeini is basically like thanks very much, America. Like there's that running who's the joke? Like Donald Rumsfeld's an Iranian agent. Like, it's like or Dick Cheney. Or Dick Cheney is an Iranian agent. It's like because all he did, all he did was just grease the wheels for Iran's acceleration, right? And it's like and the same thing, I mean, even, even this is like the Iran-Iraq war story, right? Like they they helped they encouraged Iraq, or at least they didn't stop Iraq and they helped it when the war started. Uh, you know, in the hopes of isolating and destroying the Islamic Republic, what did it do? It made it stronger, right? Like this has been one own goal after another, right? Like you try to do the, you try to get your, you try to get your hostages out, whatever. Look what happens. You send in three Chinook helicopters, boom, sandstorm. See you later. Then on the evening news, there's like an Iranian cleric like holding up like charred American bodies. You know, like this is trauma to a world hegemon, right? Now soldiers die all the time, sure, but like. The fact that this was so public, and this kind of goes to the argument of the book, is that the fact that Iran was able to inflict the standard and continue to be able to, and the drone, the shooting down of the drone is just another example. I mean, that thing was like $110 million, right? Like, that was a hospital. Like, it just, it just, it just destroyed a hospital in a sense that was, like, wasted, right? And it was obviously sent in there on purpose to be destroyed. It was, you know, whatever, right? And it's just, it is just so typical of, like, the American approach to sort of foreign policy. Waste a lot of money and get nothing done. So how do you think the incumbent administrations in both Iran and the U.S. represent either departures or continuities in the post-revolution 40-year relationship between the countries, uh, particularly during this time of escalation? I think the messaging at this point on both sides is a bit mixed. For instance, on July 23rd, the spokesperson for the Rouhani administration said that the situation with the British oil tankers could be resolved diplomatically, and Rouhani himself indicated that he would be willing to reopen negotiations with the Trump administration about the Iran deal. However, the top military advisor to the Ayatollah has also said that um, Iran would not negotiate with the U.S. under any circumstances. On the other side, U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo has indicated recently that he would be willing to go into Tehran to discuss the situation directly, quote-unquote, with the Iranian people. But the Trump administration's response overall has been erratic. Do these mixed responses to the situation kind of fit a pattern of behavior that you think is likely to continue? Or is it a break in an uneasy relationship um, in this describably cold war? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to predict. I mean, I'm trained in a political science program where you're supposed to engage in predictions, and uh, that's the last thing that I want to do. So um, I don't know. I'm reluctant to predict. But I think that uh, from the Iranian side, it looks as if, it appears as if, but who knows? 
they're putting themselves in a really effective position to eventually negotiate with the United States and to secure uh, regime stability by virtue of doing so and get just about whatever they want because I don't think that the Americans really, the Trump administration really wants to go to war because of the reasons that Sina outlined. And I think that um, it's a risky game, but if the Iranian state plays it well, they can end up uh, engaging in a process of negotiations where they get a lot of uh, what they want and what they need, which is to maintain um, their their uh, position and the current government. It's a normal country. I mean, that's, that's what we're yeah. negotiating for. I mean, this, is the, this is the absurdity, is that like, to, just be, to just exist, the Islamic Republic has to bend over backwards and somehow apologize for its existence. Right. It's like, and it's like, what? And I think, I think, I, and I have to disagree with you, Ash. I think, I think they're, they're, I mean, Khomeini, Khomeini himself, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it is mixed, but it's also pretty clear in terms of Khomeini, like, you know, he was against the JCPOA, right? I mean, at least at first, right? Like, this is the kind of, this is the, this is the so-called kind of the Rouhani and, and, and Zadik. Yeah, like, they were kind of good cop, bad cop, but it was also like, Khomeini was saying, what's the point of dealing with the American administration? They're just going to go back on their work. And it turns out he was right. So, like, the at the same time, though, the realities are the same. So, for instance, the JCPOA was a solution to a problem that never should have existed, right? That Iran had the right to do what it was doing, right? But was somehow, because Iran is Iran, and because the world is the world, was somehow except, was made to be an exception, right? Like, we're always the sort of asterisk, asterisk country. Uh, no matter what, what it is. And so the JCPOA was this kind of contradictory, was this kind of solution to a problem that really shouldn't have existed, but whatever. So the fact that they backed out of it, I think it's just reflective of like a couple of things. One is, this is just an attempt by, like, this is just a, a revenge for, this is a revenge on the part of, like, Saudi, UAE, um, you know, the kind of, the crew that runs with Kirshner, right? Like, these, 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 these ghouls, right? Like, this is punishment for the JCPOA. Right, like this business of like and, and humiliating Iran, re reimposing the secondary oh, secondary sanctions or whatever. All of this is just to teach a lesson to all of those sort of career diplomats and the kind of foreign policy people who tried to make Iran's relationship with the West normal. Right. Well, so why, would, why, the, why would it be um, a punishment or uh, some kind of a backlash or a reaction by the Saudis or the UAE if the JCPOA was simply a continuation of what has always existed with respect to Iran since 1979. I think there's a certain ex extent to which fundamentally... Was it though? Was it, it though? I think there's, there's, a, there's a certain extent to which it fundamentally is a continuation, which is we're going to hold you hostage um, until yes, you comply yes. with the way that we play the game. But then within that broader pattern, within that broader framework, which you're absolutely right to point out, something of a substantial enough of a shift occurring by virtue of the JCPOA, where the U.S. under Obama was starting to slightly realign U.S. foreign policy in the region. And I ever think so slightly. Ever, ever so slightly. slightly. Ever so slightly. But it was significant enough for it to provoke, yeah, for it to provoke a reaction from certain entrenched, entrenched interests across the region, but also in Iran, who benefit from the current status quo. And I think that's where it got a little complicated, it got a little fuzzy. And so, you know, we're seeing the reaction to that. And I think there are there certainly are, you know, elements within um, Iran who benefit from a sanctions regime economically. Um, that's, that's just a fact. 
Um, and I think that uh, it's it's a matter of you know trying to figure our way out of this morass. Like, how do you maintain um, our eyes on this broader anti-imperialist frame that you absolutely correctly outlined, while also keeping track of uh, these shifts, these smaller shifts that are happening within the context of that frame, and not just dismissing it. Yeah. All right. Did I, get, did I get too abstract? Does that make sense? It made perfect sense to me. Okay. Um, but that was it for me. Do you guys have anything else that you'd like to talk about? No, okay. Ghosts. Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining me. That was really interesting. Thank, Thank you. you. That was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.